It's everywhere. Um, 200 million Americans are exposed to PFAS through drinking water. It's in floss, it's in nonstick pans, it's in food containers, it is in nonstick fabric, nonstick carpets, firefighting foams. It has been used as a commercial product for a long time. That's Honor Apool, Assistant Professor of Environmental Engineering, talking about PFAS, also known as a forever chemical. I'm Ron Lesnett, and this is the Main Question Podcast. PFAS. It's an acronym for a wide range of chemicals that are all around us in today's world. They became popular in a vast array of applications precisely because they are virtually indestructible. But when it comes time to throw away that Teflon pan or the rug that's treated with a fire-resistant substance, that is when the trouble begins. These toxic chemicals don't break down. They get into our drinking water or into the air and cause serious health problems. Farmers are finding them on their land and in some cases have to cut back on their crop or animal production or stop altogether. Apool is one of many researchers at UMaine looking at PFAS. He and his team are researching ways to break down these chemicals into harmless byproducts and keep them out of the environment. His work is getting attention and funding to try and solve this intractable problem and more help may be on the way in this battle. Congress is considering funding for a lab that will analyze PFAS contamination in Maine and provide guidance to farmers and others. The work is still in the early stages, but it does show promise, providing us a way to get yet another dangerous chemical out of our lives. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It seems you can't turn on a news report or open the newspaper and see something about PFAS these days, so I imagine you're pretty busy. Thank you for having me, Ron. Yes, PFAS is keeping me very busy nowadays. So maybe let's start there, uh, defining some terms. What is PFAS and how do you pronounce the name of what it actually is? PFAS is a good way to pronounce it. It's, the, it's an acronym. It's a mouthful. It's per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. It has substances in the definition, so it's a plural acronym. It's unusual. PFAS stands for um, about it. 5,000, 6,000 different chemicals. It's an umbrella term, and anything that has a carbon fluoride bond in a chain-like structure uh, saturated with fluorine ion uh, elements is uh, PFAS. And so they're known as forever chemicals, and you maybe can talk about that, but why are they so dangerous, and why do they persist so much in our world? How do they affect our health? PFAS is a favorable compound because of it is relatively hard to destroy chemical properties. They are thermally resistant. They are resistant to biodegradation. They are resistant to typical weathering processes in the environment. So they stay around. We like it so much because of its uh, properties like um, uh, Teflon pans or nonstick uh, surfaces make them very favorable for everyday products. But when it and it's time to get rid of them, it becomes problematic. The chemical makeup of the uh, class of chemicals making them so difficult to destroy, and the toxicity of them, the public health hazards, the environmental implications, still undergoing. So every day we are discovering new ways that the toxicity of these chemicals could harm people. So far we know it causes kidney damage, testicular problems, cancer, 
damage to pregnant ladies. So there is a, a lot of ongoing research on toxicity. It's not my field, but we know it's not good for us, and we can see from the um, uh, the, the federal response from how um, we have to eliminate this from our uh, uh, bodies. Now you talked about Teflon pans, but this stuff is everywhere. I heard it's even in dental floss and certainly in drinking water. I mean, is, is it really pervasive in our world? It's everywhere. Um, 200 million Americans are exposed to PFAS through drinking water. It's in floss, it's in nonstick pans, it's in food containers, it has in... Um, uh, non-stick fabric, non-stick carpets, firefighting foams. It has been used as a commercial product for a long time. It's been produced domestically even a few decades ago. So it is a, a very prevalent compound. It's everywhere. It is not being produced domestically at massive scales anymore, but we still have it circulating around in, in our daily lives. Give us the cocktail napkin pitch. What are your basic research questions you're going after? I try to understand how these forever circular patterns of PFAS are. So there is an engineering water system. We purify water, we flush it down the toilet, we, we use it. And there's a natural water cycle, rivers, lakes, rainwater, groundwater. So these circles, these circular mo motion of water coincide. So engineered and bu uh, built and natural water systems. And PFAS is moving in those systems. Of course, we contribute in um, uh, through solid waste. We contribute through uh, commercial products. Industry contributes. Firefighting firms contributes that are point and non-point sources. Long story short, I'm trying to understand where PFAS naturally accumulates. Because it's much easier when something is concentrated on some medium. This could be a dead-end street in a landfill leachate, or it could be on a water filter that accumulates PFAS, and try to resolve the problem when the PFAS is concentrated on this particular medium. So are you looking to neutralize it, eliminate it, uh, you know, sequester it away? How, how do you hope to uh, deal with it and get it out of our lives in this way? Removing it from water... Uh, uh, it's not very difficult. It is just another chemical, and we know how to deal with removing chemicals. The problem becomes its circular motion. That if you remove it, then what happens to the filter medium you used? What happens to the membrane, the activated carbons that you used? So I focus on um, destroying PFAS when it's adsorbed onto filter medium, particularly granular activated carbon. Your novel approach, well, how are you approaching this than other folks are, are doing? I'm trying to integrate PFAS destruction into the existing engineering systems. The regeneration of used activated carbon is an existing uh, um, uh, network of industrial operation. The uh, European companies are powerful in that realm. They regenerate carbon and, and then they compete with new materials so they, they can recover activated carbon and sell it as a product. So I'm trying to integrate this existing infrastructure of carbon recovery and regeneration into PFAS destruction, particularly when PFAS is adsorbed onto activated carbon. We think there is a catalytic reaction that decreases the temperature of destruction for PFAS. So we want to exploit this and while we are uh, taking advantage of the um, um, existing carbon recovery infrastructure. 
obviously these chemicals are useful in many ways. Are, are there any less harmful alternatives or is this it for the applications that PFAS has? No, I think it's a very um, um, a good research question to find an alternative compound that is as good, but we have made some mistakes and replaced PFAS with short-chain PFAS and, and then realized they may be also problematic. So I think it's an ongoing long, long-term process to find safer alternatives, but the term safer shouldn't be subjective and it should be also um, uh, going through the same uh, legislations and, and, and the procedures that are regulating the compounds in our, um, in our environmental systems. What, if anything, can the homeowner do to protect themselves? Filters or uh, other, other ways to get it out of their lives? Anything? Water filters that we use, like um, the point-of-use type pitchers, um, carbon filters, under-the-sink type of uh, filters, generally work well. Um, I would recommend being on top of replacing the cartridges, maintaining their water filters, because they have a certain capacity, and PFAS eventually will break through. So my advice would be um, being on top of your water quality. Now, the other big project you're involved with uh, involves something called nanobubbles. So what are they and what what potential do they hold? So the idea we had was we are dealing with these contemporary water problems. We have a lot more water demand, a very complicated water uh, source. We have a cocktail of pollutants now, and we still rely on technologies dating back to Victorian era. The idea came to utilize this probably 10, 15 years old technology of using nanoscale bubbles to purify water. Nanobubbles are just tiny bubbles in water. They are very, very small. That makes them stable. So you create a biphasic fluid, both gas and water, and the bubbles don't rise up to the surface, so you create a permanently porous liquid. So we are trying to understand if we could uh, remove PFAS or other pollutants from water with the use of uh, nanobubbles, and it's a, a, a relatively new idea and a relatively new project aspiring to shift the paradigm of water treatment. So just for us non-scientists that are listening, nano, that signifies, how, how small is that? Nano is a, a unit that is one billionth of any metric quantity. Nanosecond is one billionth of a second. So nanometer is very, very small. If you compare the size of the Earth to a basketball, you'll be making a fairly similar comparison between the same basketball and a nanoparticle. How do the nanobubbles, what is it about their properties that allow them to you know, remove and, and do the things you're hoping it can do? They're very tiny. When they are very tiny, the same amount of gas constitutes a lot of surface area. So their size and stability is promising. They also have a surface charge, so that we, uh, they may contribute to the partitioning of these pollutants into gas phase. And then if we find a way to remove bubbles, we are using ultrason- ultrasonic uh, uh, cavitation, uh, then we may be able to remove uh, uh, these pollutants. So in, in brief, they're minuscule size and high surface area. And regular bubbles can't do the same thing. Regular bubbles are uh, buoyant, too buoyant, and too, um, not stable enough to um, stay long enough in water. So talk a little bit about working with other folks on campus to, to do the work and testing you're doing. There's talk about high-altitude balloons, uh, satellite launches. How will those things help in your work? So a nanobubble project, um, it's a very futuristic idea. As I mentioned, we are trying to shift the paradigm from Victorian-era technologies like sand filters into using nanotechnology in water treatment. 
So the idea was picked up by NASA, and they are aspiring to utilize nanobubbles in water treatment systems in International Space Station, in space exploration. So it's a very forward-looking technology. So NASA is interested in understanding the stability of these bubbles in rocket launch conditions. There is a lot of vibrations, zero gravity, microgravity, sudden shift in G-force. So that's why we are utilizing the existing U-main infrastructure for high-altitude ballooning, as you mentioned. Um, uh, we have a local aerospace company helping us to simulate uh, rocket launches. And eventually, um, we are getting advice from our NASA mentors to see if nanobubbles are uh, applicable in space. But of course, I just want to reiterate the, um, the space application, space exploration is the, the aspiration. But along the way, we may be making discoveries that are helpful for water treatment on Earth. And this is just getting going. I mean, do you anticipate putting experiments up into space? How far into the future is that going to happen? So we have a pending project proposal with NASA. It's a zero-G flight proposal. If it gets uh, it's selected for the preliminary stage, and we put together the proposal um, today, actually, the, uh, if the project is selected, then we'll be sending a crew for a parabolic flight. It's also known as Vomit Comet. And we'll put these nanobubbles into these zero-gravity conditions as a start to see if our um, initial testing in the laboratory is also valid in zero gravity in space. So this all comes under the heading of environmental engineering. What what drew you to this field? Why are you interested in it? Environmentalism was very popular in 1990s. It was a new thing. People were talking about we have to protect the environment, protect the planet. I never realized that protecting the planet is a very ambitious goal. We have to protect our own species, let alone the planet. So I was drawn to the environmentalism, and pretty much in elementary school, I was recycling batteries for my classmates, recycling juice boxes. It's age, I'm talking about age six, seven. Uh, so that's how it started that I became the environmental um, advocate in, in my cohort. And when it was time to choose an engineering branch, I realized environmental engineering is utilizing the tools and technology and science and to with a, with a very noble cause, in my opinion, to, uh, to help the environment. Um, are students involved with your research? Yes, we have graduate and undergraduate students. A, a, a relatively large number of students are helping us, of course. And, and, and uh, currently, the, the Nanobubble project is uh, hiring a new PhD student from, uh, from Ghana. And we, ha uh, we have, uh, for the PFAS project, we have uh, a, a few other graduate students that are already working in, in their degrees in UMaine. If all this goes the way you realistically hope it does, where, where do you see us in five to ten years with, with this work you're doing? Will PFAS um, be still as omnipresent in our lives or less of a danger? And, and are, are the nanobubbles going to be out there and doing their thing? Don't start to predict the future, but with the pace and the resources that are spent uh, for PFAS mitigation, I see a... a, a um, a light at the end of the tunnel, meaning that we may be understanding the pathways better. We may find better mitigation technologies. We may be uh, slowly phasing out the, the, the fear of PFAS with the knowledge building. 
but of course, I'm assuming the, the investment and the resources are uh, continuing in the next five to ten years. Nanobubbles is a very um, um, un, uh, very hard to predict one because it's a baby technology. We did not believe nanobubbles could exist 20 years ago because of um, simple mathematical equations would predict their internal pressure extremely high and unstable. But about 10, 15 years ago, we were able to see them under the microscope and it shifted the paradigm. We didn't really compute their surface curvature or electrostatic charges. So now we are accounting for them and they could actually be stable. So hard to predict. I think they are going to take off considering the needs of gas liquid mixing in aquaculture, gas liquid mix mixing in industry, in agriculture, in horticulture, in wastewater treatment. So there's a lot of venues that this could take off. And I, I view this is going to be the, um, uh, the next chapter in, in water treatment. How do you make nanobubbles? Yeah, it's, I, don't, I assume you don't put a straw in, in the water and blow, right? Kind of. The, there are different ways. These companies who we work with are keeping their secrets, trade secrets. But for the most part, principally, either you could apply some energy by mixing by, um, uh, or you could take advantage of the pressure jumps like a Venturi-type system and create cavitation bubbles. So either statically without putting any energy, very similar to you know, blowing uh, bubbles with a straw, but straw is kind of designed for uh, nanobubble production. Or you can put a little bit of energy. We have both static systems uh, and dynamic systems, and we can um, uh, generate nanobubbles through um, um, mixing, through chemical addition, electrostatically. So, um, again, I'm, I'm not very comfortable with um, uh, the, the way they are produced but I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with the principles of how they are produced. Well, we wish you well in your research and hope you have great success. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you for having me, Ron. Thanks for joining us. As always, you can find all of our episodes on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, UMaine's Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook pages, as well as Amazon and Audible. Questions or comments? Send them along to mainquestion at maine.edu. This is Ryan Lisnett. We'll catch you next time on The Main Question.